Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. Well, good morning, everyone. We are starting a new message series today on the book of Revelation. This is my first time teaching through this book. It's not the first time I've taught from this book or read this book, but it is the first time that I've taught through it. And my desire as we go through this book is to read every word. I'm gonna teach it expository style. We're gonna go verse by verse. We're gonna hit every word. We're gonna pause where necessary. And we're gonna discuss. My goal has a couple different perspectives to it. I, I, I want you to understand John's perspective in writing this book, why he wrote it and who he wrote it to. I, I want you to understand the impact that it had on the early church in the first century during some of the worst persecution the church had ever seen. And I want you to understand the impacts that that has on us as a church today. I want you to understand the history behind it. I want you to walk away with a better understanding of the different theological perspectives on it, predominantly the end of days and how that timeline might fold out. I wanna give you a full disclosure uh, you might hear some things, I might teach some things that are opposite of what you currently hold as a view of how those things fall out or unravel. But I want to make this dis disclaimer before we get going. How things transpire and how things come about at the end of the days, depending on your view on, on how things work uh, before the Lord returns, that is a secondary issue within the life of the church. It's not something that we have to fight over, um, but it is something that we can have honest discussions about from the Bible. And the only thing that I ask of you as we start studying this book is that you let the book speak for itself. Now that's harder than you think it's going to be. Because you want to read this book in light of some movie that you watched 30 years ago or a book series that you read 10 years ago, or you're gonna to wanna to read this book in light of a pastor you really looked up to one time that told you, look, I know how this is gonna work, just trust me. And you loved him and you trusted him. It's difficult to just let the text speak for itself, but that's what I'm asking you. As we go through this book, don't even just listen to what I say and take it as the truth. Let the book interpret itself and speak for itself and then leave this place and go listen and study and read on your own. Do not just take something that I say and just say, well, that's, that's the end. That's all there is that has to be said on these things because these things have been argued and discussed since the church was birthed 2,000 years ago. And I'll talk about why that is, but I want us to set the stage before we get into it. This is not going to be an easy book to get through but it is going to be a fruitful book to get through. I can't promise you that all of your questions are going to be answered, but I can promise that at the end of this, if you really surrender to Jesus and you ask him to speak to you through this book, your heart will be burning hotter on the other side of this than it did before we started. And if that's something that's interesting to you, 
then let's continue. But I'm just gonna be honest, if that isn't interesting to you, you're in the wrong church. If you're looking for a church that will make you feel good and create programs that will make you feel good and will create systems that will take care of you and change your diaper and make sure that you have enough milk in your bottle. If you're looking for the kind of church that starts on time every single week and ends at the same time every single week that is predictable, that is not this church. And I'm trying to say that lovingly. I'm not trying to say it as like, oh, we're better than somebody else. There, there, are, there are purposes for churches with specific structure to reach specific people. I'm just saying that's not us. It won't be us. If I can help it, we'll probably be meeting in a warehouse or a gym for as long as we operate as a church. I'm not interested in fancy carpet and nice cars and no one's gonna rob me during a sermon and get a million dollars worth of jewelry. And then I've got to go to the police station and in my Rolls Royce and file a police report. This isn't that kind of, did I go too far? Thumbs up or down from the elders, did I go too? We're, all right, we're still good. I just want to manage your expectations about what kind of church we are. We're the kind of church that doesn't really care too much about what things look like. We care a lot about what's going on in the inside because we believe that what goes on in here affects a lot on the outside. And what I want more than anything is for your heart to burn hotter. I want you to want more Jesus and not more stuff. I want you to pursue him above all other things and stop treating the things of this world that were made with the hands of man as vital importance. There are things that are infinitely more valuable than the things that you can touch or buy, and I want your heart set on those, and that's what this book does. It challenges your heart, and it asks you, what's most important to you? What do you value most? Are you ready for the king of glory to return? Will he find you working, or will he find you sleeping? That's what this book does. It is a shot of adrenaline in your system. And it is, a, it, is, it is a book that begs you to wake up and treat this relationship with Jesus seriously. So before we get into the book, I have to lay a little groundwork because there's some, there's some history behind it. There's some genres of what this book is about and we need to get into it. And also I have a map I need to show you. So here's what I wanna do. The first thing I wanna do before we get into Revelation is I wanna talk about the setting and the author. When this book was written is really important. So we just finished before um, Second and Third John and um, the Psalms of Ascent series. The beginning of this year, from January up until around, uh, I guess the beginning of the summer, we studied the book of Acts. And we got a good understanding of Paul traveling around and planting churches um, in the known world, which would have been, he referred to as Asia, but most of the churches he planted were in the area of Turkey and Greece. Well, he did that in the 50s and the early 60s AD. 
And after, we know from the book of Acts, after he planted most of these churches, he uh, was arrested, he was transported to Rome, and that's where the book of Acts ends. He stays there in Rome. Now we know that he probably, through church history, was released, traveled around in some other areas, but then was arrested again. And what I wanna do is I wanna pick up the time period after Acts. So everything that you've learned about Acts, um, just kind of you're making a mental timeline map, the period of time stops after Acts. From that point forward is where we're gonna pick up our conversation today. And I want you to imagine that's somewhere around uh, AD 65. Around AD 65, the emperor at the time, Nero, he, had, he rose to power in uh, the mid 50s. But by AD 65, Christianity has started spreading um, to Rome. And there was this great fire in Rome and there was a big, there was turmoil going on with the emperor uh, and the governmental structures and Nero needed a scapegoat. He needed somebody to blame for the fires and all the turmoil and all the issues. And so he blamed the Christians. And around AD 65 started this unbelievable persecution in the church where literally soldiers would break into homes in the night and they would take moms and dads out of their beds. They would bring them out and they would crucify them. They would kill them in the streets. They would murder them. Things progressed. They started feeding Christians the lions. They started lining the, um, the roadways into Rome with crosses and Christians uh, mar- are killed and hung on them. Um, as we progress from 65 AD after Nero, you've got this next emperor that rises up. Uh, uh, his name is uh, Vespasian. He was uh, just as bad as Nero. And the progression of tribulation and persecution increased, increased, and increased to the point where it got as bad. Uh, one of the favorite, favorite things to do was to take Christians to dip them in wax and to use them as human candles that lit the streets of Rome. Persecution was incredibly intense and it was dangerous to be a Christian during this time. During this time, Paul was killed. Peter was killed. All of the apostles were killed except for John. And Timothy the guy who Paul had set up as the pastor in the church of Ephesus, he was also killed. During this period of time, there was tremendous persecution and all of the leaders in the church were killed. Well, you get up to around the 90s AD and you've got a new emperor and his name is Domitian. And he had this desire inside of him to, there was always this sense in imperial culture where the emperor was viewed kind of almost like a God status. He was, he was higher than mere men. What, when Domitian took place, he elevated even higher and he started desiring that the people referred to him as God. He required that temples be built in cities. One of the temples was actually built in the city of Ephesus. And there was this process of worship where you would go and you would take a pinch of salt, you throw it into the fire that was on the altar, and you'd make some comments about the mission being the emperor, being your God. Well, as you can imagine, John, the apostle John, who walked with Jesus, the only disciple who was still alive, he wasn't down with that. He's not calling any mere man God after he literally walked with God. 
He refused to do that. He was arrested by Rome and he was exiled to an island called Patmos. And it was on Patmos that he was given this revelation that is this book, the book of Revelation. So what I want to give you uh, just geographically is an understanding of the churches he was writing to and where Patmos was. We're gonna see in the coming weeks that John, in this book of Revelation, he was commissioned to write this book and give it to these seven churches of which he was now a pastor over. After Timothy was killed, Ephesus was, didn't have a pastor, so John took over not just Ephesus, but all of these seven churches in the Asia region, which is Turkey. So I wanna show you the seven churches that we're gonna be discussing. I want you to just kind of visually see where they are, and I want you to see where Patmos is. So that's what we have this map for. So Jerusalem, for this purpose, is unimportant. I got some feedback to go slow with my laser pointer, so I'm gonna go nice and slow. This is Jerusalem. <laughs> it's on there as our North Star. It just helps us geographically know where things are because most people are not good with geography, but we know where Jerusalem is because we see it on every map we had all the way through Acts. So we've, we've got Jerusalem down here, but up here you've got Turkey. This is where Paul spent a lot of his time planting churches. He went over here, Athens is down here. Uh, you've got Co uh, Corinth, you've got um, uh, Thessalonica up here. But these are the locations of the seven churches that John is writing his letter to. So this is, what pa this is Patmos right here, this, this little red dot. It's off the coast of Turkey, about 20 miles or so. So this is Patmos, this is where John is getting his revelation from. And he writes the book of Revelation to these seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. They're in this order, theologians and historians think, because this is the, the pattern or the track that the mail delivery service would have followed from Patmos, they would have hit the churches in this order, because you can kind of see, well it's probably hard to see from you are, but there are roads that track through these major cities. So this is a map of the churches that we're gonna be reading about. This is where they're located. Now as you look at this map, you might think to yourself like, why those seven churches? Are these the only churches in existence? Why seven and why in that uh, shape? Why these locations? Well, we'll get to that in a moment, but it has a lot to do with symbolism and metaphor. And that leads us to our another, the next thing I wanna talk about when it comes to set up for this book. There's a setting and an author. We just talked about Patmos and John, but there's also in this book um, a multitude of genres within the content of the material. And what I mean by that is, uh, most books in the Bible are a letter, or their prophecy, or their wisdom literature, uh, or they're just poetic, or they're songs. But Revelation isn't in one category. Revelation is a multitude of genres. It is a letter, but it is also poetry, but it is also prophecy, but it is also apocalyptic. 
And that is the reason why this book is incredibly intimidating for most people. Because they don't understand all of the different genres that are included within this book. A letter written to the churches was an actual letter literally written to seven actual churches that existed. Those seven churches, they actually historically existed. But the book is not written to just those churches. It is written to those churches, but not only those churches. It's one of the reasons why the church fathers made sure to include Revelation in our canon of scripture because they understood that the message to these seven churches was to them, but not only to them. So it was a letter, but it's also poetic, which means that this book uses um, metaphors and symbolism incredibly um, heavily throughout the entire book. From start to finish, this book is wrapped in symbols in such a way that if you uh, are unfamiliar with them, the book can be incredibly intimidating on understanding what it means. And we'll get to that in just a second. But the question should arise in you, well then why did, why did John use symbolism and metaphor to describe what he saw? Why didn't he just give us the interpretation or give us some kind of historical, just simple, okay, this is what I saw and this is what happened and this is what I saw and this is what happened? Because most of the rest of the Bible is like that. And there, there is something to be said of understanding a historical account of an event that took place and there is something else to hear that story told from a metaphorical perspective in the spiritual realm of things that are going on behind the scenes. Do you, or am I making sense? If I were to just tell you that I was gonna get in my car and drive home this afternoon, that's an accurate assumption, assumption or description of what would take place. But if I were to um, tell that story in a creative way using metaphors uh, and, and talk about, you know, as I'm driving home, this beast leaped out in front of my car. Well, the beast, was it a squirrel? Yeah, it was a squirrel. But when I describe it as a beast who thought that it can compete with my metal machine, do you, under, do you, do you see what I'm saying here? When you start using imagery in a poetic sense, you're able to tell the story in a way that jumps. It, 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 it bypasses your mind and it just sticks you right in the soul. And it goes right to your heart and it challenges and it stirs your imagination and your heart and your desire in a way that is greater than just hearing it and processing information. The goal of this book is not for you to just hear information and process information. The goal of this book is to stir your heart to action. It is to get you out of bed. It is to open your eyes. It is, it is, a, it is a spiritual splash of cold water on your face because you're not paying attention to what's really happening around you. That's poetry, but it's also prophecy. And when I say prophecy, there's these two components of prophecy. There's the foretelling and there's the forthtelling. There's a component to prophecy that when God speaks to a prophet in a specific period in time, he is speaking to those people in that specific period of time, but he is also speaking that the components or the, the events that are transpiring are only a small representation of larger events that will take place later in the future. This is what we see all through the Old Testament and this is why I encourage you to read it regularly because the Old Testament prophecies are filled with foreshadowing, 
foretelling that has this sense of foretelling, that it's, it's, it's eventually going to point something to something more. This concept of a temple that was given to Israel in the early, uh, uh, in, in the early history of them wandering around as a people. That's a perfect example of the symbolism we're talking about. Because when you jump into Hebrews, Hebrews tells us that temple structure, that tabernacle, that actually wasn't the real one, that was a copy. See, we as a people are convinced that the physical thing is the real thing. And the things you can't see, that's the metaphor. But Hebrews tells us that that temple, it's actually opposite. That physical thing on earth was the symbolic temple because the real physical temple is the one in heaven, the one you can't see. So the metaphors are important to understand because they, they, dis, they supersede our understanding of just like things we can touch and grasp and manipulate and control. And it reminds us of our limits as human beings that there are things outside of our control and that he is working through you and he doesn't need you. Is that, is that, do you understand? So prophecy is important because you're gonna see things that, tra- that, that are spoken to this, these early churches but they're only really a small representation of things that will take place further in the future. And, and the purpose is that so that when you as a people of God see this thing transpire and you see God being sovereign over this thing, then you have a reference point for how this big massive thing that looks like this small thing, but it's more important in this big area. Well, if he was faithful here and I saw it happen, certainly he's gonna be faithful in this big massive thing that's on a worldwide scale. If he's faithful in your little tiny home at, at, when, when you're not at church around the people of God, if he's faithful there, he's certainly gonna be faithful on a massive worldwide scale. That's the important of prophe- importance of prophecy. To remind us that God knows what's gonna happen in the future and to remind us that we can trust in that. But there's also this apocalyptic aspect of the literature. And apocalyptic comes from the Greek word apocalypsis. That's fun to say, apocalypsis. Little elf reference for you before Christmas. You'll get it in three minutes. (laughs) Apocalyptic is Greek for revealing or making known things that were previously hidden. And so what the book is doing is it's saying, you see everything that's happening around you, but you don't really see what's happening all around you. And so I want to give you language to understand your role in this world that I've placed you in. I want you to understand the things that are transpiring behind the scenes so that you can start understanding who you're serving and what's going to happen at the end. So apocalypse, apocalyptic literature is designed to reveal things that were previously hidden. Now I said that this unique combination of revelation makes it incredibly intimidating, but it's not meant to be intimidating. It's meant to comfort and convict and challenge and ignite. The reason why it's intimidating is because we're unfamiliar with the language that it uses to communicate the things of God. So here's what I want you to understand. You don't need a graduate degree to understand this book. And if you've been feeling that way, let me just take that off your shoulders. This book doesn't have to be complex, but it does require something of you. And that something is not that you spend four years in college getting some degree or listen to some master student write their thesis on something. It only requires one thing, and that one thing is that you understand the Bible that you're familiar with the Bible. 
There is no outside information that you've got to go get so that this makes sense. Everything you need for this to make sense, sense exists inside this book. The reason why it doesn't make sense is because we don't know this book. Let me say that again. The reason why this is intimidating and it doesn't make sense is because we're not familiar with this book. The angel that speaks to John and when Jesus speaks to John is using a very specific, unique source material. I'd like, I'm gonna refer to it as a database. You got this database of information and the angel and Jesus is speaking to John, pulling information from this database. And then John, once he sees the revelation, he goes and writes the book. And this is another common misconception. John isn't writing in real time. He's not seeing the vision and then writing it. He sees the vision, he consumes it, and then he goes and he writes what he saw. Now, what language is he using to write what he saw? What, 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 what source material is he using? He's using the same source material. He's pulling from the same database that the Lord used to speak. So the Lord is using source material to reveal to John, and then John is using that same source material to communicate what he saw. What is the source material? The source material is the Old Testament. Some of you are like, oh, God. <laughs> the database is the Old Testament. This is why I gave you so much homework leading up to this book. This is why I asked you to read Exodus, Daniel, Zechariah, Ezekiel, because that's the source material. If you wanna understand, if you wanna see clearly, you have to become familiar with the metaphors and the symbols that are used in this book. You need the database, you need the source material. So this brings us to our purpose and our goal for this message series. Revelation 1.3 says that those who read this book aloud will be blessed. So that's our first goal. Why are we studying Revelation? Because as a church, I want God to bless us. I want us to be a people who are blessed. I want us to be a people who are happy, who are filled with joy, who are blessed. And that comes when we read these words aloud. But it's not the only blessing in the book of Revelation. There's actually seven blessings in the book of Revelation. I have those in my notes. I'll put them online on the website later. But we're also studying this book not just for a blessing, but we're studying this book because 1.3 tells us that the time is near. And when John tells us that the time is near, he's telling us that Jesus is coming back. Hear me. Jesus is coming back, and when he comes back, he will come back as a divine warrior. And when he comes back, he will judge the nations and he will conquer Satan. Let me make this as clear as possible. We're studying this book because the time is near and you need to understand that there are only two teams to play for. There is people who will follow the lamb and there are people who will follow the dragon, and there is no in-between. There is no Switzerland, there is no people who say, I don't really know what I think about that. People who try to play the middle, people who say I don't care or I don't even, I don't even admit that there are teams, Revelation says that those people are on team dragon. 
You're either serving the lamb or you're serving the dragon. And if you think you're not serving anyone, you're serving the dragon and he likes it that way. This is the reason why we're reading Revelation because I want that reality so deep inside your bones that it shakes you, that it ignites you, that it wakes you up that it moves you from apathy and uncaring and, and disillusionment to getting in the fight. If there's one thing that I want you to walk away from with this book is that there is a cosmic war going on and you are asleep in the middle of it. That there is blood being shed and we're taking a nap. That even in the American church, some of the, the, the smallest little things that are asked of us, ah, I don't know, that's too hard. That makes you feel uncomfortable. My bottle's empty. I told you we weren't that kind of church. I've had enough of people just trying to have a nice little Christian life for themselves. That's not what John is revealing to the churches in the midst of tribulation. And we're promised from the words of Jesus that tribulation will only increase the longer we stay here on earth. Therefore, we are, we are headed towards more and more and more tribulation. And if you don't see tribulation, if you don't see what's happening around you the way that God is asking you to see it, you will get your clock cleaned every single morning when you wake up. You will walk around saying, I don't know why everything's so hard. I'm just tired all the time and, and I want to read the word. It's just, I got nothing. I, I, just, I don't know. I, don't, I think I'll just, maybe I'll just like, I don't know if any of this is even real. I deconstruct my faith. I'm not sure how I feel about that. I'm not sure how I feel about that. Maybe these things I could, I could compromise. Man, the church is filled with a bunch of noodles a bunch of babies, children, who refuse to realize that what Jesus is trying to get his church to wake up is that I chose you. I chose you to, to, to participate in me building this kingdom. I want you to grow up, I want you to be fully mature, I want you to fill the altars of incense in heaven with your prayers. And I want those prayers being, oh Lord, please, please help me. I'm in trouble again, look what I did again. My heart is broken. My heart is broken at the way that we just choose to live as believers when we've got words in this book that are stabbing us deep in the core saying, no, it's, it's more than that. It is so much more than that. And this book starts by giving us a revelation of Jesus. That's how this begins. All of his church is asked, stop looking at your crib and your toys and your nursery room, and I want you to fix your eyes higher than that. It's time to grow up. It's time to take this faith seriously, and it starts by looking at Jesus. That's where we're starting today. Are you with me? All right, that was just my introduction. I want you to go to Revelation chapter one, verse one. It says the revelation of Jesus Christ. That word revelation is the Greek word apocalypsis. So this is the, 
the making known or the revealing of Jesus Christ. This is the full understanding, the, let's tear the veil so you stop seeing things in, uh, incorrectly. I want you to clearly see Jesus Christ. That's how this book starts. Which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by his sending his angels to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and keep what is written in it. Because the time is near. Now pause there. John opens this letter with a declaration. He wants everyone to know this is what I saw and this is what is going to take place soon. So he's already set out the, the expectation for the book. What we're about to see is currently taking place and also will take place because the time is near. So what I want you to do is I want you to read it. I want, it to just, I, I want you to just soak in it, like get in the middle of it. Let it just get down into your bones. I want you to hear it, and what you hear, I want you to really hear. Not just hear, hear, but I want you to hear. I want it to get deep inside of you so that when you hear it, you'll keep it. So that you'll live like this. So this, what you're about to read, becomes your reality. So here's what I want you to under, picture in your mind. This is what John is doing for us. I want you to picture a stage. And this stage is all time and all space and all reality, seen and unseen. And the curtain is lowered. John says what I'm gonna do in revealing what Jesus showed to me is I'm gonna lift this curtain and you're gonna see everything clearly moving forward. I mean, you are gonna see everything clearly moving forward. You're gonna see your life clearly. You're gonna see your place in the universe clearly. You're gonna understand the role of the church clearly. You're gonna understand the role and the goals of government clearly. You're gonna see Hollywood clearly. You're gonna see education clearly. You're gonna see entertainment clearly. What John is about to reveal through the revelation of Jesus Christ will put everything in its proper place and you will start seeing everything clearly. That's why he says, read it, hear it, and keep it because this is that important. That until you start seeing the world through this lens, you aren't really seeing the world. That's how serious we have to take this book. This is the pair of glasses that makes everything clear. Let's continue, verse four. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. All of that is in present tense. 
He is currently the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. And he made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, I mean, stop what you're doing and pay attention, because what I'm about to say is really important. He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all of the tribes. When they see him, when the nations of the earth see him coming in the clouds, the one they pierced and tried to get rid of, when they see him, they will wail on account of him. But even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Let's pause there. John opens his letter with an Old Testament database reference to the Trinity. That's what's happening in the first four and five verses. So let's break that down because this is where our understanding of the Old Testament starts becoming really important. When he says the one who, wa- who is, who was, and who is to come, John is using, and you can't catch it in Greek because most, most of us don't read Greek, but he uses improper Greek grammar to drive home a translation that is as accurate as Exodus 3.14. I am that I am. The way that John writes that phrase, who is and who was, is the same way that the uh, Greek Old Testament would have been translated, I am that I am. Now who said that? Who said I am that I am? The Father, the Heavenly Father. So John is greeting the church with a greeting from the Father, all the way back to Exodus. I am that I am. And then he says from the seven spirits before his throne. This is a reference from Isaiah 11, one and two. Isaiah calls out the seven spirits before the Lord's throne, and he says there is the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel, spirit of might, spirit of knowledge, and the spirit of the fear of the Lord. Now are these seven different spirits? Nope. They are seven qualities of the same spirit, the Holy Spirit. So now John has greeted the churches from the Father from the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit from the Old Testament, and then he greets them in Jesus. Now I need to make mention of this because this is gonna come up as we continue to go. We're starting to dip our toes into symbolisms and metaphors and the first one that we see is this number seven. Seven is more than just the number seven. Seven is symbolic, it's a metaphor. It is a number that means complete. Now where do we get that from? Well, we pull that from the Old Testament database. Genesis 2, 1, the Lord created the earth in seven days. When he was done creating, it was complete. No more creating needs to be done. 
It's done. There's a, uh, um, a, a dream that Pharaoh gets in Genesis 41, 25 through 27 of seven uh, uh, fat cows and seven lean cows. These are seven actual cows that symbolized seven years. Each cow symbolized a year. But the fact that it was seven years and seven years means that this is going to complete, it's going to be seven, seven years of complete abundance and seven years of complete famine. We see this again in Leviticus 16, 14, and 19 when, we're, uh, when the, the Lord commands the high priest when he comes in to make the sacrifice. He wants you to take the blood that was dipped from the, uh, the, the ox. I want you to come in, I want you to spread it on the mercy seat and I want you to spread it seven times because seven is a number of completion. This sin is completely covered. We see it again in Joshua chapter six, verses three through four with the march around Jericho. I want you to march around seven times. And on the seventh day, I want you to march around seven times. And the walls are gonna fall down because my judgment will be complete on that day. Your salvation will be complete on that day. There will be no more fighting after those walls fall. So seven is symbolic of completion and you will see it many times as we move forward. But then after the introduction of the Father and the Spirit from the Old Testament, we get Jesus the Son the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of all kings, the son. Now John is connecting not just the father and the son to the Old Testament, but also Jesus he's connected to the Old Testament. And he makes multiple Old Testament references in four through eight. The first would be Exodus 19.6, where he says that he has made us, verse six, uh, verse six, he has made us a kingdom of priests. That comes from Exodus 19.6 where he says to the children of Israel, you have become unto me a kingdom of priests. Now that same language is being used to describe the church. How does that work? I want you to imagine God creating this nation, Israel. And he makes a covenant with this nation, Israel. But Israel isn't faithful to their covenant. So God says that he's gonna be faithful to covenant, to to Israel. So he's gotta fulfill his covenant somehow because he's a God of his word, but Israel is unfaithful and they're not fulfilling their covenant. So what does he do? What What does God do? He sends Christ himself, God, in through Israel and that Christ becomes the true Israel. And I want you to imagine that the Christ in the middle just grows beyond and consumes Israel. Now, Israel isn't Israel. Jesus is Israel, the true Israel. And in Christ, Jews that put their faith in Jesus are included in that Israel. And Gentiles that put their faith in Jesus are included in that Israel. Now, Israel is the people of God, but it's not an ethnic thing. It is a Jesus thing. Are you following me? That's how this imagery works. And so when, God, when John says uh, that Jesus greeted all of us, the kingdom of priests, he's saying that now because you are in Christ, you have now taken on that same language that, you pre- that previously was only for ethnic Israel. Now it's for all God's people. But he doesn't stop there. He says that Christ is returning in the clouds, which is an image of Daniel 7.13. We're told that all the earth will see the one who was pierced. That's Zechariah 12.10. That's why I had you read the book of Zechariah. It's not the only reason, but it's one of them. Literally, Zechariah says, when the Lord returns, they all will see the one who has been pierced. John is declaring a bold truth that from Genesis chapter one, everything has been about Jesus. Everything has been foreshadowing 
him as the true great Israel. And we are now at a place in history where God's plan has fully been revealed and it's time for the nations to decide where they're gonna put their allegiance. Will they exist for the supremacy of Jesus or they exist to serve their own purposes and make themselves their own God? The time has come to make a choice. Now go to verse nine. It says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. I was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. And he was saying, I want you to write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Now, pause right there. I said earlier that these were seven actual physical churches that existed, but they're also symbolic because of the number of them. These weren't the only churches at the time. These seven were selected as symbolic of all churches for all time. These seven churches represent the complete work of the church of God for all time. So what God is saying to them is applicable to us. So this revelation was for them, but it's also for us. I want you to pick up in verse 12. It says, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. And the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. And his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. This is Jesus. It's not that white, hippie looking guy you see in the pictures who's all like, peace. No, hear me. He has risen from the dead and he has conquered. And his eyes are like flames of fire and his hair is white like wool. And he's got a sword that shoots out of his mouth and his feet are like burnished bronze. Where is this imagery coming from? John is pulling from Old Testament database. Daniel seven, he sees the ancient of days having one like hair that's white like wool. Well, what's interesting about Daniel chapter seven is that there's, there's two images of God in that, that prophecy. In Daniel chapter seven, you see the ancient of days walk in and the man has got hair like white wool. 
It's the Father, the Ancient of Days, and he takes his seat, and the books are open, and it's time to start judging people. And then we're told that one walks in like the Son of Man, and he is given all authority of the earth to judge nations as he sees fit. But now John is mixing those metaphors, and he's telling us that I saw the Son of Man, and he had the white hair like the Ancient of Days. What is he saying? He's saying that the Son of Man and the Ancient of Days, they're both God. This is where we get Trinity from. The idea that Jesus is God. But he doesn't stop there. Daniel chapter 10, we're told that Daniel had a vision of a man who was clothed in linen and his legs were like bronze and his eyes were like fire. This is why Jesus, while he was walking the earth, constantly referred to himself as the son of man. He's pulling from that database, letting everybody know, I'm him, I'm the guy. The one you've been waiting for, that's me. Eyes of fire. Me. Ruling over the nations? Me. That's me. We don't make that connection because we're not familiar with the database, but we can get there. He says his mouth is like a, a sword that comes from Isaiah 49.2 when the prophet says that you have made my mouth like a sharp two-edged sword. And then his face was shining like Moses' face was shining in Exodus 34.35. And we walk away with this vision of Jesus, the one true Jesus. And this is the image that I'm begging you let get into the inside of who you are. I, I want this image to get underneath your skin. Because when this is the Jesus that you're looking at, when this is the Jesus that you're worshiping, then all of a sudden everything else starts falling into place. When you see him as the rightful king, then your desire to sit on your little Lego throne that you've built and rule things in your own life, uh, this will happen and I'll do this, it seems ridiculous. Because you are not him. Eyes of fire, burnished bronze, sword coming out of your, not you. You don't rule like that. You don't have all authority. And so what is required of us is to submit to the one who does have all authority. And that's why John gets this vision. Because this vision is supposed to convict us. Get off of my chair is what he's saying. You're sitting in my throne. What throne? The one in your heart that you keep playing at. The one you keep pretending is yours. The one you keep sitting at and acting like you are in charge of your own life. That's my throne. Get up. That's the vision of Jesus who John is giving us. The one who rules with a rod of iron. The one who's got a, who's got a, a mouth like a sharp two-edged sword who can cut through all of your nonsense. Who can cut through all of your bad deals all of your lies and half-truths. He slices right through that stuff. He's, he's got eyes of fire. See, there's nothing you're putting up that he can't see through. His eyes are like fire. So if you put up this, this, this fake facade, if you can fool the church with your mask, his eyes can burn right through it. He can see right through your fake. You're not fooling him. You're either serving him or you're serving the dragon. This is the man who holds all power to all kingdoms. He's got all dominion and all authority. And I want you to see where this man is standing. The one who holds all authority. Where does he stand? Verse 17. When I saw him, 
I fell at his feet as though dead. Where are the church people falling down dead? They're not around because we're not looking at Jesus. Where are the ones who catch a glimpse of the Lord and say, woe is me, I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. Where are we? We're taking a nap. We're sipping on our bottles. When I saw him, I fell down at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me and he came down close and he said to me, fear not. I am the first and the last. I'm the living one. See, I died, but behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. So write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place. And as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw, well those, oh, sorry, I jumped it. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, well, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Where does the risen Christ, the one who holds all authority and all power, where does he stand? He stands in the midst of his churches. He's here with us right now. He's ruling, reigning at the right hand of God. He's sitting down and his enemies are being made a footstool, but he's also here with us in the midst of his churches. Now why are lampstands churches? This is an interesting shift. Because in Zechariah chapter four, we get the image of this lampstand and the lampstand doesn't symbolize churches. There are no churches in the Old Testament. The lampstand symbolizes temple. And the issue is that Zechariah and his people are trying to rebuild the second temple and it isn't going so well. And the Lord gives a vision to Zechariah and says, hey, you see this golden lampstand? It's symbolic of the temple and it's gonna be rebuilt. Not by your power, not by your might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. So in the Old Testament, lampstands were temples. Why? Because lampstands were pieces of furniture in the temple. In the temple structure, when you walk into the first room, there's this small room where you've got a table of showbread, you've got a candlestick, and then a lampstand, and then you've got uh, an altar of incense. And it's fascinating because in this room, everything in this room is touching on your senses to worship. You can taste and see that the Lord is good. This lamp is lighting and illuminating the room. There's this altar of incense that's filling the room with these smells. So you can smell, you can taste, you can see. This room is symbolic of all the things God wants his people to be here on earth. So that, that, that lampstand becomes symbolic of not just lighting that room, but it becomes symbolic of the actual temple, which is supposed to be God lighting the, na- uh, the, the light of the nations. Israel is supposed to be God's light among the nations. So this temple is symbolic of God seeing, God showing and using his people as the way. I want you to be my people among the earth. But they didn't do so good at that. And so Jesus becomes this temple and he gives this commission to his people, we see in 1 Corinthians 3.17, that we are now the temple. And so we see this imagery pulled from the Old Testament database and now reapplied in this new and interesting way in Revelation. And we're told that lampstands 
our churches. That's really important. Don't forget that, because it's not the last time we'll see lampstands. But we're also told that lampstands, that are churches, there's also these stars that are angels. So what is it saying? That there are seven lampstands, seven churches, and there are seven stars, seven angels. He is reminding his church that churches have angelic oversight. That each church has an angel that is responsible for the same thing that angels have always been responsible for, which is protection and delivering messages. Churches who follow the will of God, who do the work of the ministry, who teach the word of God and obey his commandments. True churches that are filled with the spirit. Not fake churches, not ones who put church out on the outside, but they don't follow any of his commands and they don't even read from the Bible on Sunday morning. Not those churches, not fake churches. Church churches, real churches. Churches that are called by his name, with his name over the doorpost. Churches that are filled with his people, those churches. They have angels that watch over them and protect them, but also hold them accountable before God for the teaching and the conduct within those churches. Jesus cares a lot about the local church. He cares so much that he commissions specific angels to oversee and care for them. Now there we finish chapter one, and I just wanna reflect for a moment on how intense this vision was for John. He sees Jesus in a way that he's never seen. Now he walked with Jesus for three years, but he's seeing this vision of Jesus and it has made him undone. He has fallen to the ground as of dead. But I want you to look at what Jesus does when John is overwhelmed at what he sees. Jesus looks down in verse 17. He puts his right hand on him and he says, fear not because I have overcome. So this Verse 17 is the thing I want rolling around in your heart this week. I want you to catch a vision of this Jesus. I want you to stop imagining Jesus as your little errand boy. Or the one who just comes behind and cleans up your mess. He's king. He is the ruler of all nations and he deserves and commands our worship. He's not coming behind as a butler in your home to do whatever it is that you need him to do. We are servants in his kingdom, not the other way around. And I want you to catch a vision of this Jesus. I want you to drink it to its fullest. I want the authority of this man to be the only thing on your mind. And the reason why I want that is so that you'll be convicted and your life will be transformed, but that you stop living with so much fear. Hear me. Fear is the, is the weapon that the enemy is wielding in our age right, right now. He is scaring you with the prices of groceries at the store. He is scaring you with how much it costs to, to fill your car with gas. He is scaring you about what the future might hold. He is, he is scaring you about what your church might look like. He is scaring you about what might happen to your kids when you send them to school tomorrow. He is scaring the living daylights out of his people. All the while, 
We have a Jesus who stands in the midst of his churches and his eyes are like fire and his hair is white like wool and he's got a sword in his mouth. He's got stars in his hand and he's walking amidst the churches. And we're standing here saying, well, I don't know what's gonna happen. Jesus is saying, I know what's gonna happen. Follow me and trust me and stop being afraid. I want this image of the divine warrior to be the one that gets burned into your mind so that when you crack open your Bible and you start reading, you're reading about this reigning king. When you get on your knees and you start praying, this is the man you're praying to. That when you read the news and you see what kind of the next travesty or the next, the, the next medical thing that's coming around or the next wild thing that is trying to scare you, it doesn't get past the barrier that has been set up, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing gets past his eyes of fire. Nothing gets past those burnished, bronzed feet. Nothing gets past the sword that's coming out of his mouth. That's the way his people are supposed to be living, in such a way that they are guarded and living in the shadow of that Almighty. The problem that we struggle with as a church is this is not who we see when we talk about Jesus. Let's be honest, we think he's a little weak because we pray prayers out of our own heart and our own desire and we don't see him answered because we want things our way, not his way and we're not serving him, we're serving ourselves. And Revelation 1 says, if you're gonna continue, you need to have the right version of Jesus that you're serving. Quit serving yourself, quit remaking him in an image that serves you and behold, this risen king who rules the nations with his words. Amen? Let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.